The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit. Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 19 Hello everyone, it's been a long wait, I am so sorry to have not been here. Um, anybody that knows me personally will have known that I've been having a lot of uh, a lot of trouble with my uh, two slip discs in my in my neck, which have been causing no end of havoc for me uh, in the last couple of months, uh, two three months. However, things are beginning to improve. I can stay upright now for more prolonged periods um, without bits of me falling off. Um, and I'm able to um, finally get back to doing the stuff that I love, which is this, uh, along with, with other things. But uh, it, make, it means a lot to me to be able to come back and, and start reading for you again. So first of all, I wanted to say an absolutely huge thank you to all of you that have written to me from literally all over the world wishing me well. Uh, I have been immensely touched uh, by your generosity and your and your messages of encouragement, and a couple from people I won't name them, but but who are facing their own difficulties and um, nevertheless still had enough in their tank to to offer their best wishes to me, and it means a, a hell of a lot, especially to to hear from people that are also going through their own problems. So thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. Um, the second little bit of housekeeping um, that I would like to to share is that I now have a Patreon page. Now. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with Patreon, uh, Patreon is a way uh, that you guys, as consumers, as it were, um, of of creative products, creative content, can support the people that are making it. Now, um, I want it to be completely clear from the outset that, that whilst this is becoming very fast my, my uh, way of life, uh, how I make my living, um, I don't want you to feel obligated to make any kind of contribution. That's not the point. Um, but if you, as a fan of the show, as a fan of the of the content that I'm producing, not only this, but the other stuff that I will be doing for the Rats in the Walls, which will be the Gothic Horror uh, and Ghost Story podcast that I'm currently working on, if you if you do have the ability to make a small contribution, you can become a member of uh, my Patreon um, on um, patreon.com forward slash the bearded wit. There are several tiers of, of uh, membership you can make starting at ten dollars a month. Um, and just think of that as a one one cup of Starbucks and a bun a month. Uh, if there are enough of you that do that, it will make a huge difference to my life in terms of being able to really focus on creating the content and making more of that happen. So if you can do it, please do it. If you can't, do not feel obligated. Do not feel bad about it. That's not what this is about. This is for the people that have the excess um, to be able to support me. Um, but the more that you can uh, contribute, the more I'm able to focus on creating more and more of this stuff. Uh, and um, uh, then you just will never get rid of me. <laughs> but uh, if you can, uh, go to my, the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash thebeardedwit, 
select the tier that you would like to contribute uh, towards me uh, and sign up and do that and then it's uh, it's basically it's a it's a recurring monthly um, small fee um, but uh, as I say don't feel obligated to but if you could I would be so happy uh, because that kind of contribution makes independent producers of content like myself uh, able to do what we love and what appears to be what you love too so uh, what if you can contribute that would be great i already have a few patron patrons already um so thank you very much to them i should name check them they are of course all family members my mother brenda my father john and my brother ben so thank you all three of you for your uh your um, very generous support uh, it would be lovely if some more of you could do so as well anyway enough of that let's get on with this um thank you very much again just to say very quickly thank you very much for your support um, um we will crack on now with book four uh, so long and thanks for all the fish. Uh, quick recap, um, if any of you can remember. Um, the uh, We got to the point where basically uh, Arthur is back on Earth. Uh, the Earth that has suddenly sort of popped back into existence very confusingly. Um, he's hitching to try and find his home again. He's picked up and, and received a lift uh, from somebody, uh, and it turns out that the passenger, the heavily sedated passenger in the back, um, her name is Fenchurch, uh, and we're beginning to understand that she was perhaps the lady who had, right at the beginning of the very first book, she was the one that suddenly had the realisation of what the truth of life was all about before the Earth was destroyed by the Vogon constructor fleet. But uh, we left it where that sort of thought had suddenly occurred to uh, um, to Arthur, uh, and he has caused a um, almost caused an accident by pulling on the handbrake of the car that he's getting the lift in. And that's where we got to. So we're now at uh, chapter six. Uh, we'll carry on from there. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. Thank you very much for your company. Um, get yourselves your tea, your hot toddies, whatever it is you're drinking, uh, and let's crack on. Thanks very much, everyone. Right. Six. From here, it was a four-mile walk to his village, a mile further to the turning, to which the abominable Russell had now fiercely declined to take him, and from there a further three miles of winding country lane. The Saab seethed off into the night. Arthur watched it go, as stunned as a man might be, who, having believed himself to be totally blind for five years, suddenly discovers that he had merely been wearing too large a hat. He shook his head sharply in the hope that it might dislodge some salient fact which would fall into place and make sense of an otherwise utterly bewildering universe. But since the salient fact, if there was one, entirely failed to do this, he set off up the road again, hoping that a good, vigorous walk, and maybe even some good painful blisters, would help reassure him of his own existence at least, if not his sanity. It was 10.30 when he arrived, a fact he discovered from the steamed and greasy window of the horse and groom pub, in which there had hung for many a year a battered old Guinness clock which featured a picture of an emu with a pint glass jammed rather amusingly down its throat. This was the pub at which he had passed the fateful lunchtime during which, uh, first, sorry, <clears throat> during which first his house and then the entire planet Earth had been demolished. Or rather, had seemed to be demolished. 
No, damn it, it had been demolished, because if it hadn't, then where were the bloody heck had he been for the last eight years? And and how had he got here, if not through one of the big yellow Vogon ships, which the appalling Russell had just been telling him were merely the drug-induced hallucinations of people? And, and yet, if it had been demolished, what was he currently standing on? He jammed the brake on the line of this on the line of this thought because it wasn't going to get him any further than it had the last twenty times he'd been over it. He started again. This was the pub at which he had passed the fateful lunchtime during which whatever it was had happened that he was going to sort out later had happened, and it still didn't make sense. He started again. This was the pub in which... This was a pub. Pubs served drinks, and he couldn't half do with one. Satisfied that his jumbled thought processes had at last arrived at a conclusion, and a conclusion he was happy with, even if it wasn't the one he had set out to achieve, he strode towards the door. And stopped. A small, black, wire-haired terrier ran out from behind a low wall, and then, catching sight of Arthur, began to snarl. Now, Arthur knew this dog, and he knew it well. It belonged to an advertising friend of his, and was called Know-Nothing Bozo, because the way its hair stood up on its head reminded people of the President of the United States of America. Sorry about that. <laughs> and the dog knew Arthur, or at least should do. It was a stupid dog, which could not even read an autocue, which was why some people had protested about its name, but it should at least have been able to recognise Arthur instead of just standing there, hackles raised as if Arthur was the most fearful apparition ever to intrude upon its feeble-witted life. This prompted Arthur to go and peer at the window again, this time with an eye not for the asphyxiating emu, but for himself. Seeing himself for the first time suddenly in a familiar context, he had to admit that the dog had a point. He looked a lot like something a farmer would use to scare birds with, and there was no doubt but that to go into the pub in his present condition would excite comment of a raucous kind, and worse still, there would doubtless be several people in there at the moment whom he knew, all of whom would be bound to bombard him with questions which, at the moment, he felt very ill-equipped to deal with. Will Smithers, for instance, the owner of Know Nothing Bozo the Non-Wonder Dog, an animal so stupid that it had been sacked from one of Will's own commercials for being incapable of knowing which dog food it was supposed to prefer, despite the fact that the meat in all the other bowls had engine oil poured over it. Will would definitely be in there. It was his dog. Here was his car, a grey Porsche 928S with a sign in the back window which read, My other car is also a Porsche. Damn him. He stared at it and realised that he had just learned something he hadn't known before. Will Smithers, like the most overpaid and underscrupulous bastards Arthur knew in advertising, made a point of changing his car every August so that he could tell people his accountant made him do it. 
though the truth was that his accountant was trying like hell to stop him, what with all the alimony he had to pay and so on, and that this was the same car Arthur remembered him having before. The number plate proclaimed its year. Given that it was now winter, and that the event which had caused Arthur so much trouble eight of his personal years ago had occurred at the beginning of September, less than six or seven months could have passed here. He stood terribly still for a moment, and let no-nothing bozo jump up and down, yapping at him. He was suddenly stunned by a realisation he could no longer avoid, which was this. He was now an alien on his own world. Try as they might, no one was even going to be able to believe his story. Not only did it sound perfectly potty, but it was flatly contradicted by the simplest observable facts. Was this really the Earth? Was there the slightest possibility that he had made some extraordinary mistake? The pub in front of him was unbearably familiar to him in every detail, every brick, every piece of peeling paint, and inside he could sense its familiar stuffy, noisy warmth, its exposed beams, its unauthentic cast-iron light fittings, its bar, sticky with beer that people he, had, he knew had put their elbows in, overlooked by cardboard cutouts of girls with packets of peanuts stapled all over their breasts. It was all the stuff of his home, his world. He even knew this blasted dog. Hey, no nothing! The sound of Will Smithers' voice meant that he had to decide what to do quickly. If he stood his ground, he would be discovered and the whole circus would begin. To hide would only postpone the moment, and it was bitterly cold now. The fact that it was Will made the choice easier. It wasn't that Arthur disliked him as such. Will was quite fun. It was just that he was fun in such an exhausting way, because being in advertising, he always wanted you to know how much fun he was having and where he had got his jacket from. Mindful of this, Arthur hid behind a van. Hey, no nothing. What's up? The door opened and Will came out, wearing a leather flying jacket that he got a mate of his at the road research laboratory to crash... Oh, sorry. The door opened and Will came out, wearing a leather flying jacket that he got a mate of his at the road research laboratory to crash a car into specially, in order to get that battered look. No nothing yelped with delight, and having got the attention it wanted, was very happy to forget Arthur. Will was with some friends, and they had a game they played with the dog. Commies! they all shouted at the dog in chorus. Commies! 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 The dog went berserk with barking, prancing up and down, yapping its little heart out, beside itself in transports of ecstatic rage. They all laughed and cheered it on, then gradually dispersed to their various cars and disappeared into the night. Well, that clears one thing up, thought Arthur from behind the van. 
This is definitely the planet I remember. His house was still there. How or why, he had no idea. He decided to go and have a look whilst he was waiting for the pub to empty, so that he could go and ask the landlord for a bed for the night when everyone else had gone. And there it was. He hurriedly let himself in with a key he kept under a stone frog in the garden, because, astoundingly enough, the phone was ringing. He'd heard it faintly all the way up the lane, and had started to run as soon as he realised where the sound was coming from. The door had to be forced open because of the astonishing accumulation of junk mail on the doormat. It jammed itself stuck on what he would later discover were 14 identical, personally addressed invitations to apply for a credit card he already had, 17 identical threatening letters for non-payment of bills on a credit card he didn't have, 33 identical letters saying that he personally had been specially selected as a man of taste and discrimination who knew what he wanted and where he was going in today's sophisticated jet-setting world and he would therefore like to buy some grotty wallet. And also a dead tabby kitten. He rammed himself through the relatively narrow opening afforded by all this, stumbled through a pile of wine offers that no discriminating connoisseur would want to miss, slithered over a heap of beach villa holidays, blundered up the dark stairs to his bedroom, and got to the phone just as it stopped ringing. He collapsed, panting onto his cold, musty-smelling bed, and for a few minutes stopped trying to prevent the world from spinning round his head in the way it obviously wanted to. When it had enjoyed its little spin and had calmed down a bit, Arthur reached out for the bedside light, not expecting it to come on. To his utter surprise, it did. This appealed to Arthur's sense of logic. Since the electricity board cut him off without fail every time he paid his bill, it seemed only reasonable that they should leave him connected when he hadn't. Sending the money obviously only drew attention to yourself. The room was much as he had left it, i.e. festeringly untidy, though the effect was muted a little by a thick layer of dust. Half-read books and magazines nestled amongst piles of half-used towels. Half-pairs of socks reclined in half-drunk cups of coffee. What was once a half-eaten sandwich had now half-turned into something that Arthur entirely didn't want to know about. Bung a fork of lightning through this lot, he thought to himself, and you'd start the evolution of life off all over again. There was only one thing in the room that was different. For a moment or so, he couldn't see what the one thing that was different was, because it too was covered in a film of disgusting dust. Then... Sorry, where's it going? Then his eyes caught it and stopped. It was next to a battered old television, on which it was only possible to watch open university study courses, because if it tried to show anything else more exciting, it would break down. It was a box. 
Arthur pushed himself up onto his elbows and peered at it. It was a grey box, with a kind of dull luster to it. It was a cubic grey box, just over a foot on a side. It was tied with a single grey ribbon, knotted into a neat bow on the top. He got up, walked over and touched it in surprise. Whatever it was was clearly gift-wrapped, neatly and beautifully, and was waiting for him to open it. Cautiously, he picked it up and carried it back to the bed. He brushed the dust off the top and loosened the ribbon. The top of the box was a lid, with a flap tucked into the body of the box. He untucked it and looked into the box. In it was a glass globe, nestling in fine grey tissue paper. He drew it out carefully. It wasn't a proper globe because it was open at the bottom, or, as Arthur realised, turning it over at the top with a thick rim. It was a bowl. A fish bowl. It was made of the most wonderful glass, perfectly transparent, yet with an extraordinary silver-grey quality, as if crystal and slate had gone into its making. Arthur slowly turned it over and over in his hands. It was one of the most beautiful objects he had ever seen, but he was entirely perplexed by it. He looked into the box, but other than the tissue paper, there was nothing. On the outside of the box, there was nothing. He turned the bowl around again. It was wonderful. It was exquisite. But it was a fishbowl. He tapped it with his thumbnail, and it rang with a deep glorious chime which was sustained for longer than seemed possible and when at last it faded seemed not to die away so much but to drift off into other worlds as if into a deep sea dream entranced arthur turned it around yet again and this time the light from the dusty little bedside lamp caught it at a different angle and glittered on some fine abrasions on the fishbowl's surface. He held it up, adjusting the angle to the light, and suddenly saw clearly the finely engraved shapes of words shadowed on the glass. So long, they said, and thanks. And that was all. He blinked and understood nothing. For fully five minutes more, he turned the object round and round, held it to the light at different angles, tapped it for its mesmerising chime, and pondered on the meaning of the shadowy letters, but could find none. Finally, he stood up, filled the bowl with water from the tap, and put it back on the table next to the television. He shook the little babel fish from his ear, and dropped it, wriggling into the bowl. He wouldn't be needing it anymore, except for watching foreign movies. 
He returned to lie on his bed and turned out the light. He lay still and quiet. He absorbed the enveloping darkness, slowly relaxed his rims from end to end, eased and regulated his breathing, gradually cleared his mind of all thought, closed his eyes and was completely incapable of getting to sleep. Slurp of tea. School, Alizam. The night was uneasy with rain. The rain clouds themselves had now moved on and were currently concentrating their attention on a small transport cafe just outside Bournemouth. But the sky through which they had passed had been disturbed by them and now wore a damply ruffled air as if it didn't know what else it might do if it further was further provoked. The moon was out in a watery way. It looked like a ball of paper from the back pocket of a pair of jeans that have just come out of the washing machine, and which only time and ironing would tell if it was an old shopping list or a five-pound note. The wind flicked about a little, like the tail of a horse that's trying to decide what sort of mood it's in tonight, and a bell somewhere chimed midnight. A skylight creaked open. It was stiff, and it had to be jiggled and persuaded a little, because the frame was slightly rotten, and the hinge at some time in its life had rather been sensibly pointed, painted over. But, eventually, it was open. A strut was found to prop it, and a figure struggled out into the narrow gully between the opposing pitches of the roof. It stood and watched the sky in silence. The figure was completely unrecognisable as the wild-looking creature who had burst crazily into the cottage a little over an hour ago. Gone was the ragged, threadbare dressing gown, smeared with the mud of a hundred worlds, stained with junk food condiments from a hundred grimy spaceports, and gone was the tangled mane of hair, gone the long and knotted beard, flourishing ecosystem and all. Instead, there was Arthur Dent, the smooth and casual, in corduroys and a chunky sweater. His hair was cropped and washed, his chin clean-shaven. Only the eyes still said whatever it was the universe thought it was doing to him. He would still, like it please, to stop. They were not the same eyes with which he had last looked out at this particular scene, and the brain which interpreted the images the eyes resolved was not the same brain. There'd been no surgery involved, just the continual wrenching of experience. The night seemed like an alive thing to him at this moment, the dark earth around him, a being in which it was rooted. He could feel like a tingle on distant nerve ends, the flood of a far river, the roll of invisible hills, the knot of heavy rain clouds parked somewhere away to the south. He could sense, too, the thrill of being a tree, which was something he hadn't expected. He knew that it felt good to curl your toes into the earth, but he never realised it could feel quite as good as that. He could sense an almost unseemly wave of pleasure reaching out to him all the way from the new forest. He must try this summer, he thought, and see what having leaves felt like. 
From another direction, he felt the sensation of being a sheep startled by a flying saucer. But it was virtually indistinguishable from the feeling of being a sheep startled by anything else it ever encountered. For they were creatures who learned, let's face it, very little on their journey through life, and would be startled to see the sun rising in the morning, and astonished by all the green stuff in the fields. He was surprised to find that he could feel the sheep being startled, startled by the sun that morning, and the morning before, and being startled by a clump of trees the day before that. He could go further and further back, but it, it got dull because it all consisted of just a sheep being startled by things they'd been startled by the day before. He left the sheep and let his mind drift outwardly, sleepily, in developing ripples. It felt the presence of other minds, hundreds of thousands in a web, some sleepy, some sleeping, some terribly excited, one fractured. One fractured. He passed it fleetingly and tried to feel for it again, but it eluded him like the other card with an apple on it in Pelmanism. He felt a spasm of excitement because he knew instinctively who it was, or at least knew who he wanted it to be. And once you know what it is you want to be true, instinct is a very useful device for enabling you to know who or what that is. He instinctively knew that it was Fenny, and he wanted to find her, but he could not. By straining too much for it, he could feel he was losing this strange new faculty, so he relaxed the search and let his mind wander more easily once more. And again, he felt the fracture. Again, he couldn't find it. This time, whatever his instinct was busy telling him it was all right to believe, he wasn't certain that it was Fenny, or perhaps it was a different fracture this time. It had the same disjointed quality, but it seemed a more general feeling of fracture, deeper. Not a single mind, maybe not a mind at all. It was different. He let his mind sink slowly and widely into the earth, rippling, seeping, sinking. He was following the earth through its days, drifting with the rhythms of its myriad pulses, seeping through the webs of its life, swelling with its tides, turning with its weight. Always the fracture kept returning, a dull, disjointed, distant ache. And now he was flying through a land of light. The light was time. The tides of it were days receding. The fracture he had sensed, the second fracture, lay in the distance before him across the land, the thickness of a single hair across the dreaming landscape of the days of the earth. And suddenly he was upon it. He danced dizzily over the edge as the dreamland dropped sheer away beneath him, a stupefying precipice into nothing, him wildly twisting, clawing at nothing, flailing in horrifying space, spinning, falling. Across the jagged chasm had been another land, another time, an older world, not fractured from, but hardly joined. Two Earths. He woke.
A cold breeze brushed the feverish sweat standing on his forehead. The nightmare was spent, and so, he felt, was he. His shoulders dropped. He gently rubbed his eyes with the tips of his fingers. At last, he was sleepy, as well as very tired. As to what it meant, if it meant anything at all, he would think about in the morning. For now, he would go to bed and sleep. His own bed. His own sleep. He could see his house in the distance and wondered why this was. It was silhouetted against the moonlight and he recognised its rather dull, blockish shape. He looked about him and noticed that he was about 18 inches above the rose bushes of one of his neighbours, John Ainsworth. His rose bushes were carefully tended, pruned back for the winter, strapped to canes and labelled. And Arthur wondered what it was he was doing above them. He wondered what he was, was holding him there, and when he discovered that nothing was holding him there, he crashed awkwardly to the ground. He picked himself up, brushed himself down, and hobbled back to his house on a sprained ankle. He undressed and toppled into bed. While he was asleep, the phone rang again. It rang for fully fifteen minutes and caused him to turn over twice. It never, however, stood a single chance of ever waking him up. Just going to stretch my back a second, won't be a moment. Just so we know for the um, the future, these will be shorter, these, until I'm fully back to, to normal, the readings. So we'll take one more chapter and then we'll call it a day. Arthur awoke feeling wonderful, absolutely fabulous, refreshed, overjoyed to be home, bouncing with energy, hardly disappointed at all to discover it was the middle of February. He almost danced to the fridge, found the least three sorry the three least hairy things in it, put them on a plate, and watched them intently for two minutes. Since they made no attempt to move within that time, he called them breakfast and ate them. Between them, they killed a virulent space disease he'd picked up without knowing it in the Flagathon gas swamps a few days earlier, which would otherwise have killed off half the population of the Western Hemisphere, blinded the other half, and driven everyone else psychotic and sterile. So, the Earth was lucky there. He felt strong. He felt healthy. He vigorously cleared away the junk mail with a spade, and then buried the cat. Just as he was finishing that, the phone went, but he let it ring while he maintained a moment's respectful silence. Whoever it was would ring back if it was important. He kicked the mud off his shoes and went back inside. <coughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> Sorry, folks. <laughs> I got a sneeze snuck up on me there. Hmm. Right. Okay. Sorry. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Yes, just as he was finishing that, the phone went, but he let it ring whilst he maintained a moment's respectful silence. Whoever it was would ring back if it was important. He kicked the mud off his shoes and went back inside. 
There had been a small number of significant letters in the piles of junk, some documents from the council relating to the proposed demolition of his house, and some other letters about the setting up of a public inquiry into the whole bypass scheme in the area. There was an old letter from Greenpeace, the ecological pressure group to which he occasionally made contributions, asking for help with their scheme to release dolphins and orcas from captivity, and some postcards from friends, vaguely complaining that he never got in touch these days. He collected these together and put them in a cardboard file, which he marked Things to Do, since he was feeling so vigorous and dynamic that morning, and even added the word Urgent. He unpacked his towel and another few odds and sods from the plastic bag he had acquired at the Port Braster Mega Market. The slogan on the side was a clever and elaborate pun in lingua centuri, which was completely incomprehensible in any other language and therefore entirely pointless for a duty-free shop at a spaceport. The bag also had a hole in it, so he threw it away. He realised with a sudden twinge that something else might have dropped out of the, in the small spacecraft that had brought him to Earth, kindly going out of its way to drop him right beside the A303. He had lost his battered and space-worn copy of the thing, which had helped him find his way across the unbelievable wastes of space he had traversed. He'd lost the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, he told himself... This time, I really won't be needing it again. He had some calls to make. He decided how to deal with the mass of contradictions his journey would, his recent journey precipitated, which was that he would simply brazen it out. He phoned the BBC and asked to be put through to his department head. Oh, uh, hello, Arthur Dent here. Look. Sorry, I haven't been in for six months, but I've gone mad. Oh, not to worry. Thought it was probably something like that. Happens here all the time. How soon can we expect you? When do hedgehogs stop hibernating? Uh, Sometime in spring, I think. I'll be in shortly after that. Righty-ho! He flipped through the yellow pages and made a short list of numbers to try. Oh, hello. Is that the old Elms Hospital? Yeah, I was just uh, phoning to see if I could have a word with Fenella. Uh, Fenella. Oh, good Lord, silly me. I'd forget my own uh, name next. Uh, Fenella. Oh, isn't this ridiculous? Patient of yours, uh, dark-haired girl, came in last night. I'm afraid we don't have any patients called Fenella. Oh, don't you? I meant Fiona, of course. We we just call her Fen. I'm sorry. Goodbye. Click. Six conversations along these lines began to take their toll on his mood of vigorous, dynamic optimism, and he decided that before it deserted him entirely, he would take it down to the pub and parade it a little. He had had the perfect idea for explaining away every inexplicable weirdness about himself at a stroke and he whistled to himself as he pushed open the door, which had so daunted him last night. "'Arthur!' He grinned cheerfully at the boggling eyes that stared at him from all corners of the pub, and told them all what a wonderful time he'd had 
in Southern California. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where I will leave it for this evening. Um, thank you so much for your company. Again, um, I, I cannot thank you all enough for your generosity and your very warm wishes that you sent to me um, whilst I've been uh, fighting with my, my uh, two slips discs and all the associated gubbins that comes with that. We will continue this next week. Same time, same place, same channels. Thank you so much for coming along. And also, just to reiterate, if you can, if you have the ability to do so, please do support me on Patreon. Um, if you go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash The Bearded Wit um, and um, make a, a monthly contribution to be a member of The Bearded Wit, I would be so grateful. Uh, but again, no, no uh, obligation. Uh, but if you could, I would really appreciate that. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Um, take care. The world is is um, looking a little brighter. Um, there's a little less lunacy, perhaps, in the world. Uh, but just be careful. Look after yourselves. Uh, be sensible. And I'll see you same time, same place next week. Thanks very much. Look after yourself. Be hoopy, fruits.